weekly waves with Bert and Hayes. We lift the weights and go on dates. And we are mates that educate and conversate. And it's our podcast. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. Welcome to episode 52 of Weekly Weights. We're joined by a special guest today, Robert Flett. Now, Rob is an ex-client of mine and an ex-champion bodybuilder and powerlifter. Current friend. Current friend. Of both of us. Most importantly, friends first. He is the education manager at Lift Performance Center, as well as the head of the professional development group. Uh, Rob, thanks for coming on, man. Hi boys, thank you for having me. It's should, uh it's an honor. We should probably mention he has some level of qualification. So Rob, you have a degree in exercise science and you're doing your honors currently, is that correct? That is correct. Yes. And your honors is in something to do with biomechanics and running, is that right? Yeah, so it's basically in the field of applied biomechanics. Um so effectively I'm just looking at different strength uh, monitoring systems and how they relate to dynamic performance. Cool. So as you can tell, from that rob's a nerd (laughs) and in addition to sounding like a nerd he's also got the distinction of being our first ever guest to come on the show with notes which alex and i are absolutely stoked about and i think the reason for that is because he's he's not an expert and most of the people we have on here are experts they can just speak on top of their head so thanks for coming on rob you're not expert no he he was nervous he's a big fan of the show he actually told me when he came in like very gushily he said, I think I've listened to almost every episode you guys have ever put out. This is such a big deal for me. The last part of that sentence was made up, but the rest was true. He has listened to every episode of the show. That means there's four people who have listened to every episode. It's the three of us here and your mum, Will. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've even gotten through most no, of our episodes. I'm way behind. Man, we've got to pick up our game so that I find it listenable. Anyway, oh. This is episode 52, and if we were actually weekly, this would be one year. But we started off a bit fast, so we're not quite at a year. Yeah, but then we missed a week or two as well. Yeah, we missed one week. I think we were May 14th, something like that. But we passed 50,000 um, downloads last week. And yeah, pat on the back to us. If you haven't watched the video... That was an awesome Instagram post. If you ha- yeah, if you haven't watched the video, go, go on my Instagram, watch the video, and watch Will struggle to open a bottle of champagne. It's absolutely classic. Yeah, and then go give my post a pity like. <laughs> Mine's the much more manufactured, making it look like I opened the bottle of champagne correctly post. And Alex's is the video of what actually happened, which is us just struggling. Anyway, the topic for today... Like we Rob, so off, off yeah, the Rob, thank you so much for joining us. You haven't said a word yet, which is just how we like it. Ironically, um, I'm falling asleep, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Rob's, Rob is here to talk to us about sleep. And if ever there were three non-experts in the field, it's us. But I'm a sleep enthusiast. I go to bed very early every night. Alex naps more than almost anybody I know. And Rob needs his beauty sleep desperately. I'm just a large human, so it oh, takes yeah. me... It's more of a size sleep thing. Yeah, yeah. it takes sleeping. me so long to reverse all of the effects of just getting around daily. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you must have done a lot of sleep to grow as tall as you Yeah, Rob's you about 6'5", 125 kilos for anyone who yeah. can't see him, obviously, which is everyone, because this is yeah, audio. This is an audio-only podcast, but imagine someone who's 6'5", and 125, and that would be Rob. Give him a baby face as well. Anyway, we're here to talk about sleep. Um, Rob has a background in sports science. He's helpfully gone and collated notes and his job is basically to synthesize research and present it to professionals. So I'm expecting the best ever episode, Rob. No pressure. Let's start with question one. Tough one. What is sleep? Well, if we were to look at a textbook definition of sleep, 
it would be a rapidly reversible state of reduced responsiveness, motor activity, and metabolism. But effectively, in layman's terms, we're effectively just a period of un unconsciousness um, that is um, not directly caused by any exogenous kind of anesthetic agent. So it's just us um, literally being at a time of optimal restfulness. Right, but... When we talk about sleep, we talk about sleep cycles. I'm sure most people listening to the show are familiar with the idea of a sleep cycle and things like REM sleep, although they might not necessarily know what they are. Yep. So what are the phases that we go through between falling asleep and waking up and how are they different? Okay, so there, are, there is a, like we can broadly categorize them into two general phases, um, non-rapid eye movement and as you mentioned, rapid eye movement. So within non-rapid eye movement, we have three smaller categories um firstly we have the transitional state which is um effectively when we go from that point of wakefulness to um falling asleep and typically if you were to wake someone up in that period they wouldn't actually consciously be able to recognize that they were on the brink of sleep um so it's it's definitely uh the earliest phase of that slowing of the brain waves and and entering into a into a sleep cycle um we spend the least amount of time in that stage, obviously, 5 to 10% of overall sleep cycle. Um, and then we enter into the uh, largest sleep cycle, which is our non-rapid eye movement second phase. And that's when we have um, a, a definite slowing of all the metabolic um, systems that you know uh, are monitored during a sleep study. So we see a reduction in heart rate, blood pressure, respiratory drive, um, and all those physiological markers um, of wakefulness. So we see a, a downturn in all those markers, um, and we typically will spend 45 to 55% of our sleep cycle within this state. And then we move into what's called slow wave sleep, which is uh, typical of uh, an increase in delta waves within the brain. And that's where we got a lot of our... Um, tissue repair, cell restoration, um, and physiological uh, return to baseline after, you know, after a day of work. And then we move into rapid eye movement. And that's actually, so in that later stage of non-rapid um, eye movement, we have our system at its circadian lowest. So like our heart rate and blood pressure are all at the lowest point they're going to be within a 24-hour period. And then we enter rapid eye movement where we actually get an uptick in metabolism and body temperature. And that's typical of like vivid dreams and um, memory consolidation and, and, and more of that cognitive aspect to sleep. So there are definite stages of sleep and they're um, defined um, by their uh, um, ability to restore physiological and cognitive functions. You just, that was actually one of the best responses we've gotten on the show. 10 out of 10. You didn't read much of that off notes either. So that was very impressive to me. Um, I want to zoom all the way back to the start. So you've, um, you've basically said there's, I actually missed part of the terminology because I was Instagramming you being on the show, <laughs> um, but, but there was the, um, there was the non-REM phase or oh, sorry, the, the non-slow wave phase and then the slow wave phase. So you have your non-rapid eye movement. Mm-hmm. Um, which are your initial phases. Yeah. And then you have your rapid eye movement. Right. And the slow wave sleep, you said that's the one that has the physically restorative function and that comes later in the sleep cycle. Yep. So 
immediately um what implication does that have for for athletes you know the slow wave sleep specifically in terms of like sleep duration and how much slow wave sleep they need during periods of training so typically with athletic populations um and also in adolescence they will require more of that um it's just it's uh defined as um n3 or non-rapid eye movement third stage Mm -hmm. they'll require more of that just because that is where we get the most of our physiological um return to baseline so like i said before we get the reversal of those fiber breakdowns we get a massive uh dose of um, growth hormone which restores uh, muscle function and, and allows us to actually grow from hard training um and and yeah we just get a massive influx of um uh, hormones that are conducive with recovery mm-hmm. um and so our testosterone and, and cortisol are stabilized and and so that, yeah definitely for athletes um they need adequate exposure to that cycle in particular just because of the sheer um, amount of physiological um, demands they're being put under sure and again sorry if i'm um, sorry if this is outside of what you prepared for i had a sleep researcher lecturer at uni and i think she said that in periods of like high physical demand you'll move more rapidly into the slow wave sleep phase and it might be extended relative to the other phases in yeah. sleep do you know if that happens to be the case yeah there are multiple factors uh, from the research that i've done that will determine um onset latency of rapid eye movement or how quickly you'll transition between the phases however generally you'll spend the most of most of your time within that um, non-rapid eye movement um and two specifically yeah, yeah yeah and then you know 18 to 23 percent is shown in the literature to give you that uh, rapid eye movement which is where your cognitive function is restored cool and then final phase related question from me <laughs> It's said, it's said by some people that like you don't remember dreams unless you wake up during REM sleep. Mm. Is that is that the case? Are you aware? Because that's also when you come closest to wakefulness, right? Exactly. Yeah. So um, you might note that if you get woken up by your alarm in the morning, mm-hmm. it's likely if you don't have a consistent schedule that you're being woken up in the middle of a sleep cycle. Therefore, it's likely you're probably being woken up in the middle of REM sleep and therefore in the middle of a dream. Mm-hmm. And so that's why if you get woken up by someone else or by an alarm, you're likely to remember your dreams because you've just experienced them. Mm. However, if you wake up in the middle of the night and it's at the end of a sleep cycle, you've actually gone through a complete phase of, of dreaming and a complete cycle of sleep. And that's also why people might wake up in the middle of the night or early morning and feel like, oh, I could attack the day right now, but I need to go back to bed because, you know, it's 3 a.m. Mm. Um, whereas when you get woken up by your alarm, you're in a bit of a, you know, frazzled state. Yeah. So in terms of remembering dreams, I, I think there's some uh, proponents uh, in the literature to suggest that, you know, it has to do with the proximity to um, rapid eye movement that you wake up. Mm-hmm. Um, however, there's like limited data and understanding as to, how dreams are actually formed and what they actually mean sure well let's move on to how much sleep people need you've already alluded to the fact that adolescents and those doing heavy training need a little bit more yeah but if there was going to be like some general population wide prescriptions how much do we need 
What so, do you say, 12 hours? Yeah. <laughs> Alex is thinking somewhere between like 18 and 23 would be ideal, but he could live with 12. <laughs> so for blonde... Um, what about... Yeah, Alex how did is Eric a koala. Helms, how did Eric Helms describe Alex? A blonde millennial. A millennial, from yeah. Australia. yeah. From Australia. Yeah. Definitely 12 hours. Um, so for everyone else, the literature suggests, and you've heard it from your GP and from, you know, proponents of health on social media, that you'll need... Around eight hours is the typical mark. And that allows us to get through like four or five of those sleep cycles and is sufficient exposure to those to those sleep cycles and the benefits that they pose um, for recovery and for um, cell rest, uh, restorative, you know, functions. However, in the, in the, like in childhood, we'll need more exposure to REM sleep uh, just because of the um, motor cortex activity well, um, kids need dreams for them to yeah. be shattered by our yeah. Old right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so brain, yeah, <laughs> definitely. So brain development is a, is a huge factor in terms of um, uh, being optimized by exposure to REM sleep. Um, however, young adults, and if we define it as young adults and older adults, there's actually not a huge difference in the demands of, of, of the requirements for sleep. Although some people say if you're younger, you'll need more sleep. And once you get older, like you can get away with less. It's more to do with individual factors and lifestyle factors. Like activity tends to be higher among young people. So exactly. they would need more restorative sleep than old people who just play bridge. Exactly, 100%. Yes. But on the on the other side of the spectrum, like we all have grandparents who spend half of Christmas Day asleep on the on the couch. So it's, it's really, it's, um, yeah, to do more with lifestyle factors and what stage you are in terms of your career and... Well, like, what are your actual goals out of life? That will dictate your sleep more than your actual chronological age. Um, but, uh, so yeah, global sleep requirements are similar, but uh, and REM sleep requirements remain stable. However, young people do spend more time in the uh, non-rapid eye movement third stage, which, as we alluded to earlier, is the stage where we're reversing all those um, physiological breakdown so like tissue repair and things like that and that probably comes back to that that they're just doing more general activity and have more um, fatigue to decay how would this um, how would this change based on where an athlete would be like in a training cycle for instance so let's just take an average powerlifter yep. if they were doing a hypertrophy block versus strength block versus a peaking block or even like a deload how much sleep would they need relative in those phases of training so powerlifting is a massive insult to the body in terms of fiber and tissue breakdown. Um, You're saying my body's insulting. <laughs> yeah, I thought, I thought you were saying just powerlifters have insulting bodies for a moment. Which is true. Well, that too. Yeah. <laughs> Weekly weights, topless calendar coming out for 2020. Probably with the merchandise. <laughs> yeah, go on. Yeah. So yeah, so obviously there's a massive um, tissue breakdown. There's a massive neural component. If we think of that stimulus recovery adaptation curve, particularly when a powerlifter is peaking, they're under a lot of neural... They're going to have to decay a lot of neural fatigue, um, which uh, in turn means they, they'll have greater sleep requirements um, in order to reverse that. Um, but also like beyond that, just like ligament and tendon um, disruption and things like that. Uh, they're obviously going to have more requirements for the amount of time they're spending in, in, in the um, corresponding sleep cycles. I suppose I'm just thinking about that from the opposite end um, while you talk. So obviously during peaking, 
any um, any deficit in your recovery is really detrimental because if you're handling say 90% plus loads and your preparedness is off by you know three to four percent then they can go from being like challenging loads to near impossible or extremely challenging whereas when you're doing you know eights and tens and twelves and things you've got a bit more of a buffer for having a shit day but on the other hand there's probably never a good time to be under recovered either right because if you're doing eights tens and twelves you're wanting to promote some type of physiological adaptations, which means you still need to recover in between. And we'll get we'll get onto this when we talk about some of the science of um, of sleep and training adaptations. But it seems like it's it's pretty important to get adequate sleep if you want to grow muscle and get stronger and stuff at almost any time, right? Yeah. So you might you might hear coaches saying, "Oh, you're over you're over in an overreaching period. You, you're meant mm. to be tired and fatigued." However, if that fatigue is coming from inadequate sleep, then that's not conducive with optimal performance on the platform yeah. um, in peaking or actually on the day of the event you want to make sure sleep is optimized because in with that you'll get all of those um, necessary reversals of the training stress um, or all of that that can be achieved through sleep so we're, we're effectively managing a major pillar of recovery um, as well as other active recovery methods and nutrition in order to get back close as close to baseline as possible and that means that all our fatigue is being generated from training stress and not from you know just staying up too late or whatever let's divert slightly from the plan rob (laughs) Rob looks terrified no this is no um the question really is just um you know you were talking about major pillars of recovery there and you mentioned nutrition and active recovery and things how potent of a modulator of fatigue generally is sleep as compared to you know adequate nutrition managing lifestyle stress things like that is it is there a way to quantify that i'm not familiar in a way to like it would it's just because of the amount of confounding variables in that in that equation um however you can you can assume that sleep has this big factor of um perceived fatigue so i think that's where it really comes down to um um, our ability to uh you know withstand heavy loads in peaking and actually go about our training and um, how we feel on a day-to-day basis, that is heavily um, entrenched in or dependent on uh, a good sleep health and hygiene. Um, And if sleep is compromised, then we're just likely to suffer from lower moods. We're more likely to appraise our sessions as harder, um, uh, irrespective of the other um, recovery modalities but i think you know if your sleep is say an hour here an hour there you're not getting enough of then perhaps it's not the biggest deal and um like if it's just lifestyle factors that get in the way don't stress too much however if you need to you know optimize it where you can so that's analogous to saying if you have a diet that provides adequate energy but here and there food quality is 80 percent that's okay, but if you have a diet that's shit house, you don't get adequate protein and your energy intake's all over the place, then you're obviously selling yourself short. Exactly. Alex has a question. If you are missing out an hour here, an hour there, is that are you able to catch up on that later in the week? Like, is that something that can actually be resolved at a later date? Yeah, so sleep debt um, is often one of those things where if it's an hour here or an hour there, which is what sleep debt is defined as, as opposed to sleep deprivation, which is long-term sleep debt, mm. you can make up for it. Say on the weekend, you you know, you know, make up six hours of sleep 
um, that you didn't get during the week. Um, but oftentimes, if you're not actually thinking about your sleep or keeping a sleep journal or monitoring it, then you won't actually notice that you're not getting the sleep. Because sleep debt is kind of insidious in the way that it it doesn't have um, obvious symptoms and people can often... Um, uh, function regardless yeah and they might think oh i'm just in a bit of a funk at the moment whereas if they've actually you know accrued quite a few weeks worth of sleep debt um i'm sure we'll get into it but you know utilizing strategies like naps throughout the day if you are one of those busier people <laughs> like alex that's busy really- <laughs> come on <laughs> <laughs> then that's a really good way to kind of reverse the negative effects of um of having a bit of a sleep debt and i guess something else that occurs to me is like in the case of powerlifters, if you're accruing little bits of sleep debt, so a couple of hours here and there across the week, whether or not that makes a big difference to cumulative fatigue, I don't know. But it's not like all of your sessions are back-ended towards when you are sleeping and feeling rested. You have to train, say, on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday, irrespective of whether Friday night's the only night you actually get good sleep. Yeah. So if you have this cycle of feeling progressively shittier through the week, then chances are your training quality is also going to be predictably shittier at the times that you come in more fatigued. Yeah. So again, it just seems like sleeping more is better. Definitely. And if you're going to take one thing from this interview slash podcast slash... Um, catch up between catch mates. Up, yeah. Um, <laughs> then, <laughs> then just note that, yeah, that um, you probably need to be sleeping more and there are ways to increase your sleep hygiene and there are practical strategies that we're going to get into as to how to do that effectively. Rob, is there such thing as too much sleep? Asking for a friend. <laughs> I would say that you could have too. You could argue that the, you could have too much of anything, and that if you're sleeping too much, then maybe there's other things in your life that might take the brunt of that. So, and it also might show that you there's some sort of other underlying mood disorder or something like that. People like seriously, people with uh, depression or lower levels of uh, serotonin and dopamine tend to be. Um, it goes. It's kind of like a bandwidth. So they'll they'll either be have a greater propensity to sleep more, or have um, a reduction in their sleep quality and quantity. Is that relationship bi-directional? So like you know, exactly, the yeah. lack of sleep will drive you towards depression. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's massively bi-directional. It, it, and there's um, uh, there's good literature to support the fact that low mood is caused by sleep deprivation and sleep debt, which in turn causes further sleep debt. And I remember um, this was classic pop science, so I think it was woefully misreported. But there was a study a number of years ago that said something like eight-ish hours of sleep was, you know, was optimal for health, but any more than 10 was predictive of early death or something, or predictive of um, morbidity or something like that. But it it's very likely in that instance that the reason people are wanting to sleep 10 or 12 hours yeah. a day is because of existing morbidity, yeah, you know? Exactly. And then like, obviously if it was predictive of mortality, then it might be because you're saying, Oh, you know, this cancer patient is sleepy all the time. You know, they didn't get cancer cause they were asleep. Yeah. Like, they're wanting That's to sleep. the problem with these correlations we draw in particularly in um, this type of research is that it's, there's so many confounding factors that it's easy to say um, that something is due to, something else without actually looking at the overarching um, problem at hand. I remember I actually had to do a sleep study when I was 14 or 15 because um, I Can had you this... put me in contact with this person, please? <laughs> yeah, I'm about to tell you how shitty of an experience it was. <laughs> I've got this picture of me. It's really funny. Um, 
So I had to, yeah, I had to go do this sleep study. I went through this phase of being enormously tired all the time and like low mood and things. Um, and they suspected it might be to do with sleep apnea. Um, and, and I went and did this sleep study and my dad had to supervise me because I was under the age of 16 or something. So he had to sleep in the chair next to me. And my dad snores like a chainsaw. Right. And so I was in this foreign environment and it was kind of like dimly lit and I had all these wires and shit hanging off me. So I was already not wanting to sleep. And then my dad went down the road and had something like Indian for dinner and then smashed three or four beers and he's fallen asleep on the sofa next to me with his head rocked back going... <laughs> I reckon I slept like two hours yeah. in this whole thing. And then they said, yeah, you're right as rain. You sleep like really well. And I was like, how on earth could you possibly have Yeah, it's because they're probably judging like not the actual quantity of sleep because obviously when you go for a sleep study, if there's, you know, uh, you're having symptoms of sleep apnea that, you know, a lot of people do get, particularly those who are overweight and obese will. <laughs> yeah, I was a bit chubby at 14, yeah. <laughs> then, um, then, yeah, there's definitely... um. They're just looking at the quality of sleep. So how you're transitioning between the cycles, how much time you're spending within those cycles, yeah. not the actual hours spent asleep. All right, cool. So this whole tangent, Alex, did you have something to add? No, okay. I was going to ask the next question, but you keep going. Well, the whole tangent launched off how much sleep do people need. Mm. You said broadly eight hours seems to be good. Then the next question is how much inter-individual variability is there? We've started to allude to why there might be differences, mm. but... You know, again, you hear anecdotes of those people who can function really well on like four hours of sleep. So Donald Trump apparently doesn't really need to sleep, although he doesn't seem to have the best cognitive function here and there. And then there His are other people. really good, though. Well, he doesn't. <laughs> what? He lives on Diet Coke, doesn't he? And he doesn't drink alcohol. So my man, I'm all for that. I don't like alcohol, and I love Diet Coke. That's a lie. I love alcohol as well at the moment. Um, but, but yeah, how much? You know, is it true that across the population there are people who m- might need significantly less sleep or significantly more? Are you aware? Um, I know that, like, there's a lot of people who are saying, like, successful people tend to sleep X amount of hours and, you know, some people will get away with five or six hours of sleep. My understanding of the literature is that in order to sufficiently expose yourself to all the... Um, necessary hours within each sleep cycle that eight to ten hours is the gold standard so what do you think of what arnold schwarzenegger famously said when he said you know i hear some people say they need to sleep i can't do a good accent (laughs) i sound like dracula when i do arnold schwarzenegger um but he says you know some people say they need to sleep eight hours i say sleep faster yeah i mean that's terrible cool. advice. <laughs> I'm not going to argue with someone like Arnold Schwarzenegger, like far out. But um, but yeah, there's there's definitely like oh, sleep when I'm dead. That's a common thing in like uh, success stories and things like that. However, if you're performing suboptimally, then you're probably not going to be realizing your true potential. I know um, Tim Ferriss, for example, is a huge proponent. He'll cancel meetings um, because he's underslept. I think that might be going a bit too far. However, I think, you know, (laughs) given all the the research that is available, there would be very limited scope for people to um, function on less than, you know, six hours of sleep. Next question, Alex, do you reckon? Got it right here, Will. You don't have to show me your sheet. I was just making a suggestion, like an editorial suggestion for the show that we might advance 
the Please agenda. Please don't have any domestics in front of me. Okay, I get enough of that. <laughs> I think home. people listen to this show probably thirty percent for the information, which so far has been very impressive, by the way, and about seventy percent for Alex and my domestics. It's <laughs> 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 listening to the most dysfunctional supposed partnership for an hour every week. I think uh, I think Will is too passive aggressive and uses some words that might confuse Alex, and Alex is a bit too prickly as well. Yeah, that's our <laughs> shtick. Away from here where the roles are completely reversed. Alex is Alex says really snide things yeah. in a kind of funny way where you're like, oh, did, was he insulting me five minutes later? And I'm really quick to anger. Like, I'm horribly violent in my everyday life. Alex, you want to ask the next question? Not really. <laughs> okay, I'll do it then. So, so we started talking about sleep um, quantity and quality being important for training adaptations, and you mentioned its influence on mood and dietary behavior and stuff as well. So, can we just unpack that a little bit more? Let's talk training specifically first, and then we can maybe talk about stuff like injury risk after. Cool. So, hit us. Okay. Um, well, yeah, there's a lot of research into how performance can be affected by poor sweep, sleep sweep, <laughs> poor sleep quantity and, and quality. Um, for example, a study by Skeen in 2011 showed that 30 hours of sleep debt showed uh, uh, significant reductions in muscle glycogen and voluntary muscle contractions in, a t- in uh, team sport athletes. Um, and so that really shows how we're not restoring baseline levels of those markers of good performance. Um, obviously, our, our ability to um, produce force and produce it repeatedly is compromised with reductions in muscle glycogen stores. Um, but also, in endurance athletes, it's been shown that time to exhaustion is uh, reduced um, And on treadmill tests, for example. Um, in terms of motor function and motor skill, a 2013 study by Rayner showed that um, in a group of elite tennis players, there was a 15% reduction in serving accuracy as a result of a week of sleep debt. So we can see there's kind of a two major um, things at play here. We're getting um, uh, an inability to recover with our physiological markers of performance, but also a major cognitive function or um, cognitive uh, um, factor there as well. Um, Another thing, and this is probably pertinent to your powerlifting audience, which is probably 100% of you. Um, <laughs> and mum. Shout out mum. <laughs> my mum actually. Yeah, what up Heather? Shout out Heather. I haven't seen Heather in young. She'll see your name on the on the iPhone update and she'll be like, oh, I've got to listen to Rob. Yeah, she's nice. apparently she's sent on auto update just to boost our metrics, which I think is awesome. Like she downloads <laughs> every episode. Anyway, carry on Rob. So a study, uh, one of the most famous studies on weight training and sleep um, was by Riley in 1994. And they showed that... Uh, Partial sleep debt in weightlifters didn't actually create a reduction in performance markers between the control group and the tied group, um, but the tied group group did rate the the work as more fatiguing or their perception of of the uh, work as is like worse. So they'll they'll pretty much like just in a worse mood and more more um, readily. Uh, uh, judgmental of the coach's instructions and things like that <laughs> well anecdotally i'd say that rings really true right like every time you come off a big weekend say at the expo um so alex worked basically three days straight at the expo how was your session on monday i didn't train right well, that, <laughs> i well, didn't get was, out of bed <laughs> that was smart so i trained i can't say i did as much work as alex at the expo but i got absolutely wasted on saturday night um and on monday you know i'd have said 
RPE wise, everything in my session was boosted by two, and I took yeah. probably an hour longer to do the session than normal. So I might do it in ninety minutes. It took me two and a half hours. Yeah. You know, and the whole thing felt much worse. And if I were to look back across my training history, that's a pattern mm. of whenever I sleep poorly or come off a big weekend, you know, my Monday session or the session after I've had a bad sleep feels harder, takes longer, and takes more psychological yeah. effort. But then the the implication of that that seems important to me for like training clients and particularly people who are hobbyists in the sport is that if your enjoyment of training is impacted negatively by your affect so your mood as a result of poor sleep then you're probably going to be less likely to engage in the sport longer term or you're going to have to make concessions in your training to make it more sort of um, palatable to you as a result of the fact that you're coming in fatigued and if I think across my personal training clients even the ones who aren't powerlifters like I have one guy in particular who's a really busy professional that runs a business and his mood coming into training when he's coming off big weeks of lots of meetings and things is really poor yeah. and he's got really poor drive to exercise, doesn't want to do it then. But when he sleeps well, he actually enjoys his training quite a lot. And so you can tell, like he'll tell me, I hate this yeah. when he's tired. And then if he comes in off a good night's sleep, he'll tell me he's pumped to train and he wants to lift more and do more work. And it's really that big, that big of a difference between A and B in his instance. Yeah, and that's a big phenomenon that's kind of outlined in the sleep research with athletic performance. Um, so yeah, in that in that early study um, in 1994, they showed that those weightlifters just perceived um, fatigue was higher. Um, and then in a follow-up study in 2007, um, they showed that a greater extent of sleep loss or sleep debt, so 24 hours or more of sleep debt, then you started to see those physiological markers of reduced performance. So both in EMG analysis of muscle excitability um, and voluntary muscle contraction reduced, but also movement task capacity reduced as well. So they'll just shitter at actually performing the movements. Sorry, when you say 24 hours of sleep debt and previously you quoted 30 hours, is that across the course of a week or across just any time span or what? Um, so it varies between studies. Um, but effectively, when they quote plus 20 hours of sleep debt, um, it's generally across the course of a week. Right. Um, because that's just, you know, the practically the best way to go about it. So 20 hours across a week, quick maths, is about three hours less sleep per yeah. night. Yeah. Or a couple of nights where you sleep, you know, five or six hours less and a couple where you sleep one less. Exactly, yeah. Um, but it really brings up that, that point that I really wanted to get across to your audience is that these factors are time dependent. And so if you have a power lifter who's stressed the night before a, um, a big session or even a big um, competition or something like that, the negative effects of that sleep loss aren't going to be because of actual physiological. Um, they're not going to be kind of f from those, that type of physiological fatigue or, um, uh, those components they're more likely to come about because you just generally feel tired but your body is still able to perform at a high level um, and so one night of sleep debt it, it won't significantly affect performance pot potential unless you let it um, so is that an instance in which as a coach you can say suck it up like you've got this and as an athlete should we be advocating people to like take stimulants to make up for it or is that sort of a slippery slope I don't know I think stimulants like stimulants like caffeine are a really good potent way of 
reversing the effects of one night of sleep debt. Right. Um, obviously, over the long term, we don't want to do it because of that shift to sympathetic tone and like cat- excessive flight or fight responses and stuff like that and the negative effects that that has on us. Um, however, on, on a single day, if we've had a poor night of sleep, that means that um, a chem- chemical called adenosine hasn't been filtered out of our brain. Like I'm oversimplifying this, um, but effectively a good night's sleep allows us to filter out adenosine. Um, and so if we have more adenosine than usual, that it's above baseline levels, then when it binds with the rece- adenosine receptor, that gives us feelings of sleepiness and tiredness. Mm-hmm. And caffeine directly works as a competitive agonist um, to that re- to those uh, chemicals. Yeah, so, so it binds, it binds to, to the receptor and stops. Yeah, so it l- completely limits our perceptions of fatigue, and that's one of the largest components or larger, largest performance enhancing components of caffeine is that it severely reduces our appraisal of how we feel, um, and it shifts us more to a sympathetic tone. So we're more likely to have. Um, uh, increase output of hormones such as like catecholamines and adrenaline and cortisol and things like that and so that post caffeine crash that people experience is that like a really rapid saturation of the adenosine receptor because suddenly there's not that competitive agonist in the mix yeah so like the body is always striving for that homeostasis so whenever you're utilizing an exogenous substance in to rectify something as soon as you stop the use of that you'll get a um a response um, that might be in excess. That's why you see people who are like go out partying and taking drugs and the following days, their, their body is trying to reverse the effects of that influx of serotonin. Um, and that creates a net deficit and they'll get feelings of depression and things like that. Um, so, you know, those substances like caffeine and stimulants are really potent, but their application needs to be well thought out. The reason, sorry, Alex, you jump in. So you mentioned that caffeine can be, I'm sorry for going off topic, but you mentioned that caffeine can be um, good if we are sleep deprived. What if we are not sleep deprived? How would you go about recommending caffeine intake for lifters? Um, I would say it's still performance enhancing because of the shift in sympathetic tone. So if we're going out to a barbell, we probably a heavy barbell and we want to squat our one RM um, and we're, you know, sleepy or just like not really feeling it. We want to have all the tools at our exposure exposal to, um, increase our our physiological and psychological state and that's conducive with a sympathetic tone um, which means our heart rate is increased our blood pressure is increased we're feeling like we need to run away from that saber-toothed tiger and we that is enhanced through taking caffeine independent of whether you're well rested or not um what was i going to say oh yeah so i recently came across some research which i didn't read so take this with a grain of salt um recently came across some research though about how much caffeine was actually required at the muscular level Mm. to increase contractility and it was like what would potentially be lethal to a human but it does have like you were saying um the cognitive benefits and it does have the you know the drive towards sympathetic tone that would probably help with performance but i think caffeine is one of those things that probably gives you a bit more drive to train and makes like makes you feel better doing it but i don't think it necessarily actually promotes muscle contractility if that makes sense um yeah you could kill yourself with caffeine before it actually made your muscles contract harder yeah um what was i going to say the reason i said it was potentially a slippery slope or in asking the question i asked if it was a slippery slope was because if you're coming into sessions perpetually feeling a little bit under rested and so take caffeine to compensate 
And then if you take caffeine within a certain number of hours of sleep, it then inhibits you actually getting the quality sleep. You're going to come into other sessions under recovered and things. And I guess part of why Alex might have asked his question was whether you thought there was a rationale for reducing your caffeine dosing or being concerned about where it is timed relative to sleep in order to maximize sleep quality because otherwise you're putting a Band-Aid over a bigger and bigger wound, I guess. Yeah, and from the, what the research says, and it might not be the best way to go about it in practice because of those variables that you mentioned, um, is that even if you're quote-unquote um, caffeine dependent or you've got a high tolerance to caffeine you can still get the performance benefits on the day so if you take a dose of caffeine it doesn't necessarily mean you need to you know go higher than you usually would um the performance effects uh stay true to everyone um who ingests caffeine however obviously in terms of um uh continued consumption um we'll see a delayed onset of those uh, phases of sleep with with caffeine. Also, during the sleep cycles, you're more likely to be more aroused. So your propensity to wake up is increased if you're taking caffeine within a five-hour period. So the dose and the time with which you take the caffeine is really important to make sure your sleep quality isn't affected. Right. Alex? So what dosage would you recommend? Um of caffeine and when would when would you recommend someone takes it so if someone trains in the pm you'd probably say don't take too much yeah i'd say like i mean it's going to be individually is there like a milligrams per kilogram sort of i'm not guideline? i'm not aware two to six milligrams per kilogram is like the broad like the yeah. very broad one six is at the like very high end yeah i think two to five <laughs> yeah Alex but i think i think two like to titrating it to kilo. titrating it to body weight is still a bit of a slippery slope like you'd be 120 kilos and take the same amount as a 60 kilo person but have like a panic attack like so it's, it's very into yeah it's yeah. it's really individually driven as to how um sensitive you are to caffeine um but I would, I think a broad guideline would be say, um, uh, yeah, within five hours of, of trying to um, go into a sleep cycle that you you avoid anything like caffeine. Yeah. All right. So this whole caffeine discussion <laughs> launched from the feelings of tiredness from the weightlifting study from 1994. Yeah. Um, were you done with listing the training related research or? Yeah. 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 We can go into. Well, yeah, the next one was talking about yeah, recovery and injury risk. Do you, mm. do you have any research to hand about yeah, the potential risk to, risk of injury to people who are under-recovered due to sleep debt? So, I mean, with uh, in reference to powerlifting, um, there's been some research to suggest that with lower sleep, we've got an increased um, or reduced uh, immune um, immune system so mm-hmm. our um, ability to recover from training is compromised because of the um, uh, increase in white blood cell count and things of that nature and pro-inflammatory markers um, where significantly increased risk of upper respiratory tract infections and things like that and if you combine that with a heavy training stress then that is just magnified so um, in terms of immunity um, sleep is crucial in terms of uh, staying clear of any of those types of you know the common cold and things like that in terms of injury i know that you know the the studies that i quoted before show that there's a clear link between sleep debt and 
cognitive function and in that is muscular coordination so we're more likely to probably in a powerlifting context misgroove a squat or have reduced intramuscular coordination um, because of that reduction in excitability of the muscle yeah so that's definitely a component that plays into uh, sleep debt and sleep deprivation all right and what about um what about other factors that are say important to training but not immediately training related so i'm thinking things like you know weight gain and loss um you know muscle gain in response to a training stimulus um dietary compliance and you've already mentioned psychology yeah um do you have anything else to unpack further with regards to that uh yeah so poor sleep can cause this like deregulation of our leptin ghrelin system do you want um, to maybe very quickly explain what leptin and ghrelin are yeah so you'd probably be better at describing this than me will um but leptin effectively um gives us feelings of uh or reduces feelings of hun- hunger um whereas if ghrelin promotes hunger is that correct yeah it's close enough ghrelin <laughs> ghrelin promotes feelings of hunger that's correct and yeah leptin promotes feelings of fullness or reduces reduces propensity to hunger um and it also has other metabolic effects so i think there's a relationship between leptin and propensity to neat so non-exercise activity so um yeah higher leptin levels i think will also drive you more towards things like fidgeting and stuff too but it's they're basically two big metabolic regulators and they control propensity to intake um yeah like food intake i should say yeah so there's a there's a definite in the literature there's a definite um uh uh what's the word i'm looking for link relationship yeah link correlation one of those things correlationship <laughs> make a word up like fuck it you're a scientist you can literally say anything no but there's a definite um connection there we go between uh poor sleep and a hyper caloric diet so we're more likely to overconsume food and we're less compliant to a dietary approach if we're we have a reduced uh, sleep quality or quantity um the actual underlying reasoning for that is kind of unknown um however it's there's definitely a correlation there yeah that's is that to say you eat more food when you when you haven't slept as much yes, is yes. that the body trying to recover in it, other, it could in be other yeah, means? Yeah, it could be trying to um create more resources to recover tissue damage and, and, and that kind of thing i also think it disrupts your mood and that has a big factor on compliance because the less slept you are um then the more likely you are to deviate from that diet plan. Yeah, no, I guess also just the factor of sort of like willpower or willingness to make a difficult decision or to make sound decisions in general would be impacted, right? Yeah. Um, if your cognitive function's down, then any decision that actually requires you to weigh up alternatives and make a choice that's in the long term beneficial is probably going to be harder. Yeah, 100%. But that's based a- on no research. That's just a hunch. <laughs> but there is research to suggest that you're more likely also to crave fuse foods that have um you slept much this week I Rob? Know, it's terrible um foods that have uh, like more dense cal- like dense caloric load so right. like pizzas chocolate things like that is uh more, you're more likely to kind of snack on those types of foods when you're underslept um and less likely to kind of look for whole foods and high fiber kind of options i don't know why this is the case but apparently sleep deprivation or I don't know if sleep debt as well, but sleep deprivation also reduces insulin sensitivity. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. Um, do you know the physiological rationale for that? So there was a study in 2019, actually, um, and they looked at... That's now. Yeah, yeah. really current. Um, 
So when you cite a 2020 study, <laughs> just because you're so across the literature, I'm going to literally shit myself with excitement. <laughs> Go on. So uh, Dominguez, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Shout um, out, Dom. Yeah, Domo. What up? Yeah. <laughs> Go on. So they took a really impressive sample size of 4,000 people. And they showed that even in the non-obese, um, less, sleeping less than six hours caused um, endothelial cell dysfunction, which is effectively um, how uh, pliable your arteries are. Um, and, you know, if they're more stiff, which is inherently what causes the dysfunction, um, you're more likely to occur to have um, factors relating to heart disease. But also, in addition to that, insulin resistance increased, um, as did visceral fat um, stores. Um, And that was backed up, or not backed up, that was um, also seen in a 2014 study of 20,000 patients over 12 years. Um, And that could, again, be because of that bidirectional relationship. If you have less sleep, you're more likely to overeat and become obese. And when you're over when you're overweight and you're obese, you're more likely to have obstructive disorders such as sleep apnea, which then um, which then causes that cycle to continue. I guess um, related possibly because I don't know enough to say this for certain, but you did mention the athletes with the sleep debt who were who are recovering less muscle glycogen, yeah. which might also reflect a reduced insulin sensitivity in their case. Although you would think for athletes that most of the carbohydrate you were taking up was non-insulin mediated. So when you do like muscle contractions and things, you have translocation of these transporters that help you suck in glucose from the blood. Mm. But whether or not that insulin sensitivity issue also affects athlete populations in that respect, I don't know, maybe. Probably less likely just because, you know, being fit and healthy and weight trained, you're less likely to come across those um, issues with insulin sensitivity. but I think it's really interesting in the fact that you do have that um, that correlation with overweight and obese um, and reduced sleep quality and vice versa. Cool. Um, what do you reckon... Alex, you had something to say. I was going to say, should we take a break? That was, that was exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. So Rob was talking about insulin sensitivity and I was... I was very interested. Alex was drinking his monster and trying to burp as far from his microphone as he can. I think I still got it. You still got it? All right, let's My have a... My nose has been running incredibly throughout this whole thing, so... All right. You're nervous, bro. You're a mess. No. <laughs> Rob's going to go blow his schnoz. We'll be back in one sec. Rob's on his favorite po- podcast. He's nervous. All right, welcome back, everybody. Weekly Weights 52. Will here, Alex with me, Rob with us, the hilariously prepared Rob Flett. We were talking about science, and Rob was pissed off that Alex wanted a break because he had more stuff to talk about with regards to circadian rhythms and timing your training. So first things first, what's a circadian rhythm? What are those little insects that leave their shells on the tree got to do with (laughs) rhythm? (laughs) And how does that relate to training? Are you proud of me, Rob? For uh, that joke? Yeah, that was, that was great. Thanks, no. bro. <laughs> you want to take it away? we should just leave it there. <laughs> no, go on. All right, so circadian rhythm, I think it's really important to bring this up just because when we're talking to athletes and powerlifters, like powerlifters are different to athletes, but um, yeah. We're not athletes, man. <laughs> um, no, that's a stretch. I've had clients and i've been kind of subject to this myself that's like a varying schedule in terms of 
um, competition coming up. You don't know whether you're going to be lifting in the morning, lifting late at night. Um, and it's important that we actually try to identify when we're going to be um, needing to perform. Um, that is what what time of day we're going to actually um, need to you know get under the bar and perform. Um, and I think the earlier you can find find out, the better. And then you can actually adjust your circadian rhythm in accordance to that. But yeah, what is circadian rhythm? Effectively, it's our internal body clock. So um, it's basically signaling within the hypothalamus um, and with respect to... That's a big African animal, Alex, by the way. <laughs> Lives in the water. Go on. Alex is so not interested. <laughs> and then with res- and then it, it, it's affected by, you know, sensory input. Okay, so the best example is um, when the sun comes up and the, when the sun goes down. Um, when like we song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when we are exposed to light, um, we are more likely to produce hormones and neurotransmitters that are conducive with wakefulness. So, for example, cortisol um, and adrenaline. On the other side of the spectrum, when we are in a dark environment, um, not exposed to light, and towards the end of our waking state, our natural waking state, um, we're likely to secrete melatonin through the pineal gland, um, and that gives us the feeling of you know, tiredness and wanting to um, begin sleeping. So it's important to factor in this uh, with regards to performance. And if we know that we're going to um, lift late at night, for example, then um, shifting the time with which our body produces those hormones and those neurotransmitters is important. And it needs to happen, you know, ideally at least two weeks out in order for us to see a shift in that rhythm. Um, and therefore a shift in, in how our body is operating at different times during the day. Obviously, naturally, we've evolved to um, be best suited to that uh, 10 p.m. sleep time, 6 a.m. wake up. However, we can adjust the uh, levels of those neurotransmitters and hormones and when they're secreted uh, if we change up our schedule and we're consistent with it. So um, would you say that um, people train the best when they're more consistent with that time exactly yeah, yeah okay. they'd be more likely their body would more likely preemptively um uh ramp up its its uh state to to train at that time so you're more likely to release hormones conducive with training and then so you're saying by timing your training around the same time as competition you're more likely to facilitate a good com- competition performance correct yeah so if you if you go to bed at 9 p.m but you you know that you're scheduled for a late finish or a late start um, at nationals, for example, this is what happened to me. I ended up pulling my last deadlift at like 11 p.m. or whatever it was. But you won. Yeah. <laughs> yeah sh- won a body weight. Yeah, we didn't actually mention that. Rob is a junior national champion powerlifter. Now gone jiu-jitsu competitor. And it's funny because it's like I'm following the path of Chad Wesley Smith just, you know, without all the world records and general life success. <laughs> Anyway, in terms of sleep, um, if we know that we're competing late at night, then perhaps training late at night is a good option. Obviously, in terms of um, practicality, that might be a little bit dependent on your own schedule and your occupation. But if we can do a few heavy sessions later on at night and practice waking up a little bit later, then we can shift our circadian rhythm and therefore um, 
preemptively allow our body to be uh, more wakeful at those times where we're going to need to perform. This reminds me of um, Brandon last year at Junior Nats. His session finished at 1am, which is like peak gaming time for him. Oh, and he was on fire. And he was absolutely on fire. (laughs) I cannot imagine anything worse. I'd pull out. I would literally just X myself on everything and just be gone. Just email Robert. Hey, Robert, can I lift at 9am, please? Yeah, I'd change weight classes. I'd change genders if I had to to lift at <laughs> nine in the morning instead of that. That'd be... Identifying as an 84 kilo female. Yeah, please, just for one day. Um, okay, you had one other thing to talk about other than circadian timing, Rob, and you mentioned it in the break. I forgot what. Oh, so um, one other thing is that, like, particularly at the higher weight classes, um, powerlifters tend to be classified as obese or overweight. And in that, with that higher BMI, Um, you're more likely to run into those um, obstructive disorders that can cause things like sleep apnea. So it's good to be aware of just the symptoms of sleep apnea um, and the negative effects it can have longer term. And um, so essentially, if you've got a, you know, weight-trained individuals tend to have a larger neck circumference. um, And then there are other factors. So if you're genetically prone to like structurally in terms of cranial facial um, structures, uh, like for example, you might have large, a large tongue or something like that. Um, then you're less. <laughs> Will's poking out his tongue. I think that's moderate size, mate. So you're sweet. It's thick though. <laughs> um, Girthy Burke. Yeah. So weight trained individuals, in particular, are more likely to to find themselves with those types of obstructive issues. Um, and symptoms of that is literally waking up in the morning and feeling like you literally haven't slept. Um, and that's just because during the night you've been interrupted, your sleep cycle has been interrupted by bouts of apnea or hypoxia. And that in and of itself has really bad um, cardiovascular impl- implications. Um, but also in the longer term, um, the sleep deprivation from that is obviously negative as well. So just for those in higher weight classes, particularly powerlifters and weightlifters, um, it's good if you are experiencing some of those symptoms to go and have a sleep study and just make sure everything's cool. Wicked. Well, thank you for that, um, Dr. Rob. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what broadly, like we've spoken about sleep and you've sort of said how important quality sleep is a few times. Yep. What What is quality sleep? What are the factors you've got to think about when you talk about how good was my sleep last night? Well... In terms of quality sleep, we want to make sure we're exposing ourselves to all the sleep cycles. So we've got sufficient exposure to non-rapid eye movement and rapid eye movement. Um, And with that, we're getting both the physical and cognitive effects of good sleep. And um, if you're finding that you're waking up a lot during the night um, and, and or you're just not getting total hours of sleep, then that means obviously you're... um, you're going to need to employ some strategies to increase the quality of sleep that you're having. Um, And in terms of combating that, I mean, it can come from a a variety of factors. Stress usually causes a lot of um, sleep disturbance. So does alcohol and caffeine um, that we described earlier. Um, But also, uh, yeah, things like that, uh, like... uh, medications some um, antidepressants and things tend to have uh, can have negative effects on sleep but um, stress seems to be the big one and with this modern society we're probably busier and more stressed than ever and therefore we need to employ stress 
stress management stress management schemes in order to third time lucky. <laughs> to uh to combat that yeah um so yeah what are some of these strategies so in terms of sleep hygiene we can um optimize the environment so a lot of sleep specialists describe it as the cave analogy so you want to find a cold dark environment that's most conducive with sleep um Sleep is often occurs when our body temperature drops as well. So being a little bit cooler as opposed to warm is, is a good strategy. Big shout out to Chrissy who doesn't let me put the fan on and I always tell her I sleep better with the fan on. Now <laughs> we know why. Fuck it. I'm going to tell... This <laughs> is one of my the theories. So I'm known for having shit theories. So, but, <laughs> um, but I explain everything through a shit theory. Here's a really good one that's definitely true. Women's, <laughs> <laughs> women's body temperature runs lower than men's and I think this varies across the menstrual cycle, possibly in line with my theory. I need to check that. But women's core body temperature tends to be a little bit lower than men's. And I think it was... Uh, I don't know. Um, anyway, I I suspect that part of that is because it makes them want to snuggle. Mm. And then if women snuggle more with men and then they sleep next to men, mm. like evolutionary, more chances to impregnate them. And that's why Chrissy needs the room to be warm, Alex, is because it's her biology making her stay close to you so that you guys can have, you can procreate and have little powerlifter babies. Hopefully with Chrissy's mobility. But wouldn't she want the room to be cold so that she has to cover? That's what I was about to say. Good point. No, but that's, that's the thing. She doesn't know that. So prior to your blankets existing, the only source of warmth she would have had is your big pale body. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think about that? Yeah, it's big and pale. <laughs> it's, it's, well, it's pale. It's more <laughs> Yeah, all right. Anyway, so that's that's my completely unofficial theory of humanity. But just, yeah, girls like hotter showers than boys. Girls always need more blankets than boys. Girls always steal your jumper. You know, it's shit ass. And that's why. It's because their biology tells them to. They're colder than us. How much do you want to find someone to steal your jumper right now, Will? So much, guys. Um, <laughs> look me up on Instagram, w.berkmanpt. I always check my other inbox, by the way. So if you send one there, I'll still have a look. Like the requests. Yeah, the requests. Right. That was cool. The sauciest ones are always in there because they're like people detached from you who just like see a photo and just don't even Mine know. Mine are 90% those like fake Russian accounts yeah. where they say like, check out my webcam here now. And it's mine like... Are, yeah. Mine are all people reacting to my story with like a hundred emoji or like a fire emoji. It's lame. Yeah, my stories don't really evoke that reaction in many people. I get like the laugh and the thumbs down emojis, you know. <laughs> All right, we've gotten way off topic, but I'm glad that I've made that theory public. Somebody who does science get back to me and tell me that I'm right. Anyway, speaking, speak, this is a good segue. Speaking of checking Instagram DMs, we're doing need to get off our phones. Oh, we sleep. very good. So yeah, yes, good, Alex. As yeah, I mentioned, professional. As I mentioned before. That's 52 episodes into this. Yeah. <laughs> this. This is like the mixture of the most informative and most shithouse discussion. You know why, ever. though? It's because we've actually got a guest in person for once. Like, yeah. all of our guests on the internet, we can't banter with as much. Yeah, true. Because there's that latency issue where you make a joke and yeah. then you think oh, they're not. You go. No, 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 you go. <laughs> and then all yeah. the timing is lost. <laughs> yeah, go on, Rob. So, yeah, and the retina will detect. So. The release of uh, melatonin is uh, directly linked to the retina detecting light sources. So if we're on our phone late at night um, and our visual cortex is detecting light, then we're less likely to release melatonin. 
And effectively, that is our body saying, hey, it's morning. We're going to be wakeful. We're going to have um, be highly attentive. And that's why if you're on your phone, like even a few hours after, um, even a few hours before you go to sleep, then the onset of sleep is going to be delayed. So you're going to get that latency effect um, similar to kind of the caffeine and your arousal is more likely to be higher as well. So um, in terms of light, particularly blue light, which you get from screens and and, um, uh, devices, that's something we really need to be wary of. And even uh, reducing the light sources from like overhead or lamps, um, that needs to be dulled or just completely avoided pre-bed. What about television in bed? Uh, that would constitute... Strong no? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder you're in bed for 23 hours a day, Alex. Because <laughs> you're just in there watching the NBA. Some <laughs> people like going... To, like, I'm guilty of this myself. I like going to sleep to something. Yeah. Yeah. That's I used really to listen nice. to um, podcasts with my laptop next to me. Is that so you don't have to, like, face the voices in your head? Rob, I'm loving this. Get another guest in person just to roast Alex. This is the best. This is the best like tandem roast of Alex. That sounds bad that we've had since the Helms episode. Yeah, we've got you on the spit, bro. I like it though. You would. Um, no, I I have really particular sleep habits as well. I need to like read my book for about 15 minutes. Reading's great. Reading then, is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like just anecdotally, I find that if I read um, as opposed to being on my phone, and I'll slip into that nice relaxed state really quickly. Yeah, reading bores me, so I sleep immediately. Exactly. Like just like you can hardly get through a page if you're really tired. It's or brutal. If you're just, if you're just reading. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm talking. There's been times when I've gotten home wasted and read like a few pages of my book. Don't that's, remember a that's thing. That's weird. <laughs> but then you just go back and reread it, yeah. and you get a completely different story. So it's basically two books for the price of one. That actually brings up another subject is if you have a significant other or if that significant other takes the form of a right hand. Read um, to them. Will, you can, <laughs> Will, you can stop listening now. Yeah. <laughs> um, then the oxytocin release and serotonin release can help, you know, uh, feelings of relaxation. So it's another viable option if all others are exhausted. Genuine, genuine <laughs> question because you alluded to masturbation. Surely you don't release oxytocin from masturbating. So oxytocin depends how vivid like, your source is. <laughs> well, so oxytocin, um, people listening, is the like the love hormone. That's what people say. Um, and so you know the release of oxytocin when you sleep with a new partner is supposed to make you closer to them. Um, again, probably so that they stay the night and cuddle up against your pale body, Alex, um, so you can impregnate them. But yeah, it's. Oxytocin is the love hormone, right? Um, so it just seems really weird to me that masturbation, just because you orgasm, would make you feel oxytocin because then that's just like ultimate self-love. Like you're going to develop some romantic attachment to your hand. Yeah, so you'd be sweet. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been a deeply fulfilling relationship for just everyone. need to do it like American Psycho style, so right in front of the mirror. Yeah, and then oxytocin. Yeah. 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 Um, anyone? <laughs> Weirdly, a number of people I've made the American Psycho reference to recently haven't known that movie. Yeah. Which I find, yeah, I find very strange. Fucked up, man. Yeah. Yeah, but you don't even need to have watched the movie. It's just iconic. Um, people who don't know it, there's a scene in which he's having sex and he's like looking in a mirror and flexing at himself while he does it. 
Yeah. Anyway, so self love there. <laughs> I don't believe again. Whoever does the science about my theory about girls wanting to cuddle <laughs> for pregnancy, um, check out the oxytocin masturbation hypothesis. I don't think that's a thing. Disclaimer: I don't have a reference for that. So <laughs> <laughs> it was, was just Rob intuiting yeah. that, <laughs> that the reason wankers love themselves is because of oxytocin from all the wanking. <laughs> Oh man, this podcast has gone off the rails. <laughs> this is awesome. So we were talking about sleep quality. We're talking about sleep hygiene. You mentioned light sources. You mentioned stress. You mentioned a cool, dark environment. You mentioned the potential for oxytocin, self-served. What <laughs> What else? Uh, noise input. So, you know, listening to heavy metal music, probably not the best thing pre-bed. Mm-hmm. Um, however, white noise machines and like if you... There's some apps where you can get like just um, noise that is consistent, that's not variable, um, that's uh, likely to create an onset of those brain waves that allow for you to slip into that transitional sleep. So, so what is white noise? <laughs> oh, I thought that was you thinking. No. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's just a stable. Um, I don't even know about musical notes or anything yeah, like Chrissy that. Yeah, brought one of those bought one of those recently and has been using it and at first I I hated it. Yeah. But I've gotten used to it and it's good. Yeah. It's like some people will think, "Oh, I've got this little uh, air conditioning unit or this fan and I can't sleep without it." Mm-hmm. And it's actually because they've gotten used to that white noise and they associate that with going to sleep. So, so that's it's a bit like the soothing sound you get yeah. if you hear like waves breaking gently exactly. in the background. That's yeah. So get a fan because it's cold and yeah. it makes a nice little soothing noise. Boom. Yeah, and your missus has to hug you. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm saying. Nice. <laughs> this bumps all around. All right. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Definitely uh, managing noise. Um, and then other things like uh, meditation and deep breathing. Um, some people, if you're desperate, you can use like a Valsalva maneuver. And that can increase CO2, which gives you feelings of drowsiness. Probably like... That sounds to, potentially yeah, dangerous as well. It does well, sound so that's potentially bit... dangerous, but it is a viable option if you really want to, you know. Yeah, go out like Michael Hutchins exactly. and just. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is the Rob Flett sleep advice. Guys, please, nobody take this. So, increase CO2 through autoerotic asphyxiation, get your oxytocin hit, straight to sleep, and that's either sleep or death. Uh, Michael Hutchins was the in excess guy who died in a tragic autoerotic asphyxiation accident so that's a bit rogue but anyway Rob, if you think about it death is like the the best the, sleep, you're the sleep. sleep. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah true well you did say you sleep when you're dead earlier okay <laughs> the cousin of death who said that is that coolio is that a rapper yeah there was absolutely no chance i know that gangster's paradise the gangster's paradise yep so another method is um (laughs) (laughs) thank you rob (laughs) so rob is now mediating a rap rap battle between alex and myself go on rob um so yeah another method is also managing what you do when you wake up as well so Mm. you want to look at both sides of it um so like exposing yourself to light um ideally like getting in vitamin d and sunlight when you wake up helps shift you into that good circadian rhythm and your body is aware of the fact that um, melatonin secretion can reduce and you're you know you're effectively you're awake for a 12-hour period or however long it's going to be um, and that will then um, help the transition into a uh, um, tired state like closer to when you actually want to go to sleep 
Right. Yeah, my sleep hygiene sucks. I've just found this out. I've been saying this for <laughs> so long. She's been telling me this for ages. Yeah, Chrissy is Chrissy's quite mindful about improving her sleep hygiene because she had her issues with insomnia or whatnot. Yeah, I, I'm, I always say like, nah, nah, sweet, I sleep heaps, it's fine. <laughs> well, you do sleep heaps. You're a gifted sleeper. Yeah. If there's one thing I can say you're very good at, it's sleeping. It's doing nothing. Lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the less you do, the better you are at it. <laughs> um, let's talk about sleep tracking because you did mention the idea of like journaling sleep earlier yep. and you said it was a good way to help you actually identify and then countermand sleep debt. Mm. Um yeah, let's go on to that. So sleep um, sleep tracking apps, sleep journals, are they useful and how do you use one? Um, a sleep journal, effectively, you can monitor just, you know, writing on a piece of paper how, um, how you slept, uh, what time you went to bed, what time you woke up, um, and just tracking that and monitoring if you're getting disturbances. And then you can create like a database to refer back to and if there are any trends, say say like diet trends or um, lifestyle trends that correlate with a period of poor sleep, then maybe you're better able to identify those. Um, but in terms of actual um, non-invasive monitoring, so like heart rate and movement tracking through like a Fitbit or an Apple Watch or something like that, or those apps, there's actually only been about 10 studies on them. Um, so a 2018 review showed that uh, they're quite variable. So some monitoring systems will overestimate some will like significantly underestimate and that's just simply because like i said earlier that during that rem sleep stage there's an increase in sympathetic activity and some of these monitoring systems will think of that of you as you are waking up when in fact you're just going into a rem state i'm um, speaking of monitoring sleep did alex ever tell you about the time he took a ruler to bed he wanted to see how long he slept that's just very incorrect. <laughs> oh, man, I've been sitting on that for like 40 minutes. I was, I was trying not to smirk when I said it. All right. Um, yeah. You got much more to add on sleep journals? Uh, not particularly. Um, just in terms of uh, there's actually a, a good um, resource that your listeners can go to. So Ethan Greens came out with a uh, 2019 review of the best sleep trackers in 2019 so he compares all the different devices ranging from invasive to non-invasive um and so based off your you know lifestyle factors you can kind of and your financial financial um uh state means means you can select what's right for you and if you actually want to go down that road of monitoring sleep and get really into it then yeah, I'd, I'd direct you there for sure. That would be at nosleeplessnights.com. All right. Um, we've hit... Oh, Alex, go on. Let's do a little summary, Rob. So give us five sentences on how to improve our sleep. Go. So how, how much sleep do we need? When's it important? Who's it important for? Go. This is the first time Alex is actually listening attentively. This whole podcast <laughs> is gone. I'm going to let him ramble for 90 minutes and then just get the 30-second summary. <laughs> so there are various sleep cycles. Um uh, that can be broken up into our physical and cognitive restorative cycles. Uh, so rapid eye movement and non-rapid eye movement. Eight to ten hours gives us um, adequate exposure to these cycles. Athletic populations may need more. Um, there are factors uh, such as reduced cognitive function and reduced physiological um, uh, regeneration with sleep debt and sleep deprivation um, but in terms of combating these there are sleep hygiene um, 
strategies that we can employ in order to optimize our sleep cool do you have Very much well more to, that was actually extremely well done do you have much more to add on sleep just Jokes aside, I do very much appreciate that you've prepared. So are there, are there topics we haven't covered so far that you did want to talk about or that you think were important? Um, not particularly. I think like for this population in terms of powerlifting, it's just making sure that sleep is like that one of those major pillars of recovery. Um, and often at times if we're underslept, then we may show signs of overtraining when in fact we're just under-recovered. So making sure that our sleep is squared away through the uh, through either monitoring it or just being aware of the symptoms of poor sleep, I think is really important. And then um, as coaches, do you think it's maybe a useful screening point, particularly when you do have athletes who are coming in seeming under-recovered? Yes, 100%. Um, and then just being able to consult the client and make sure that they... Make sure that you're well read up on sleep hygiene because it will create a significant effect on um, the quality and quantity of sleep and all the strategies available. Also, making sure the client isn't stressing about not getting to sleep due to performance anxiety the night before. And, you know, based off the research, it's just going to be your perception of how you feel that inhibits your performance, not how ready you actually are. So don't get stressed if you can't sleep the night before. Um, just make sure that in general, you have all these uh, proper sleep strategies squared away. I just thought of a question which might be applicable to powerlifters who travel for competitions. So obviously routine and sleep hygiene is very important for quality and quantity of sleep. Um, how would we manage this when we're not sleeping in our own bed or in our, in our own house for that matter, if we're traveling into state or overseas for a, a competition? Yeah, so there's actually a study done um, by some of my supervisors at uni, um, Aaron Coots and Rob Duffield in particular. And they they noted a phenomenon in team sport athletes, particularly in Australia, because we have several time zones we cross, like if you're going from Sydney to Perth, where the uh, jet lag and, um, and time difference will reduce performance. And just traveling generally reduces sleep quality and um, performance. So like I said before, um, the major... Um, strategies to combat that is shifting our circadian rhythm so utilizing things like naps um, in order to like daytime naps in order to make sure we're exposing ourselves to the earlier sleep cycles Um, and one thing on naps is uh, you want to aim for 30 minutes of sleep because that that way you're kind of entering the first and second stages so you're getting a really good potent exposure to um, those that physical restoration but you're not slipping into REM um, if you slip into REM you're likely to wake up really like agitated and groggy feeling mm. um, so you know nap around 30 minutes which would mean maybe planning a nap f- midday for like an hour so it gives you enough time to actually get to sleep and um, in terms of like traveling man it's just like having tools available so like um, making sure like you know traveling business class if you have the means to um, just way, like ways of making your environment a little bit more comfortable know whether you like to sleep on hard or soft surfaces have like a pillow available that you're familiar with um, and just have a routine that you can um, follow that's impervious to changes in your environment um, so yeah just trying to adhere to that uh, cave analogy with environment and going to sleep and you also mentioned that just one night of of sleep debt won't affect performance too much yep. so even if you don't get enough sleep yeah the night before a meet you shouldn't be too worried about performing the next day yeah the stress from like agonizing over not getting enough sleep is more likely to cause a, a significant 
um, <coughs> detriment to your performance than the actual sleep debt itself. Yeah, cool. Yeah. All right, wicked. One more quick break and then the four questions. Hey guys, Rob Flett here, Education Manager at Lift Performance Centre, host of the Lift Education podcast, but featuring on Weekly Weights with Will Berkman and Alex Hayes. They are your hosts and they're about to ask me the four questions that you need to know in order to get to know me. That was pretty good. Yeah, hey man, you know, there's a vacancy on this show as yeah. of right now. Um, yeah, you yeah, can I'm be you. Yeah, fuck off. <laughs> um, that was mad. All right, we're asking the four questions. Alex, take it away. I I assume because you've listened to every episode that you know what's coming and that you've planned answers. I'm probably least prepared for this segment, to be honest. I see, yeah, there wasn't I a see, research paper notes. on this one. Yeah, literally. <laughs> I see notes, I've Rob. taken notes because that's like my OCD nature is just to take notes for everything. But like, yeah, they're pretty much just the questions. So I know what's coming, but I'm not prepared. All right, Rob. <laughs> Question one. If you could take one person out to dinner, dead or alive, who would it be? So I have two avenues for answer. I have one which is like a good person that has actually contributed to the betterment of society, and that would be Winston Churchill. And then I have his arch nemesis, which would be Hitler. So either one of those two would be great. That's rogue. <laughs> All right, um, you know what's interesting? So there are some people who would argue that Winston Churchill was like a modern day imperialist and did some things that were really bad as well. Just throwing that out there to be contrary. I don't really have a strong opinion about him. I'm curious as to why you would want to go to dinner with Hitler. Because I was thinking yesterday, I'm reading a novel right now about two brothers. It's called Two Brothers, um, who were brought up in like wartime Germany. Um, and their life was torn apart as a result of the Nazis coming to power. And I was thinking, while I was reading it, I'd be fascinated to read more Nazi history and like read Mein Kampf and stuff and try and wrap my head around this bloke. Why on earth would you want to go to dinner with him, though? Do you want to poison his, his beer or something? No, I actually want to just ask him some questions, but more importantly, like meet someone from the time and who better to meet than the person who caused it. Like the protagonist and antagonist in your mind of this... But also, it's just the fact that, like, that wasn't too long ago to where an entire, like, a nation went to war with the entire world, effectively. Like, And you're very Aryan, so he would actually like Yeah, yeah. That too. (laughs) So what questions would you ask him? Like, can you not? Or... No, yeah. He's like, leave the Jews alone. That's not a question. That was just a, that was a suggestion. Well, I would lead with that, right? Um, no, um, but in all <laughs> thanks for coming. Leave the juice. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, like just someone how he captivated an entire um, population. Obviously, they were under economic stress, but how desperate they were to actually um, form and and get in line for a um, extremist and a really just inherently evil person, and how like I'd probably question is charisma and how he actually was able to like lead in that in that fashion and actually captivate people to that extent because i think like given his views and how fascist he was it's pretty impressive for lack of a better term to like be able to you know captivate a whole nation like that and likewise churchill what's the i mean i can guess but what are some of the attributes that would make him an interesting dinner guest because he sacrificed civilians in order to take pressure off English airfields um, so that they could um, restore um, their means of production with, with uh, you know, like 
planes and pilots and things of that nature. So effectively, he made it personal with Hitler. He bombed Berlin so that Hitler would bomb London. That took the pressure off their airfields, and as a consequence, they won the Battle of Britain. So I think it's just interesting the way he came to that longer-term picture that, you know, I'm going to have to sacrifice civilians in the short term in order to, uh, you know, prevent death in the long term. Again, this is coming from a not-World War II historian, but don't you think it's funny that, you know, he, yeah, the British did bomb German cities with civilian casualties, um, and yet Churchill isn't doesn't seem to be considered somebody who committed war crimes or anything like that, yeah. broadly, even though, yeah, you know, like, Dresden was destroyed. It's just interesting that, like... <clears throat> Sometimes you might have to play dirty in order to get the result that's favourable. No, I don't think there was any anything good about yeah. World War II. Anyway, that'd be very interesting people to have dinner with. Um, sure. What was question two? Actually, question one B. <laughs> <laughs> Not to do with dinner. Um, we've interrogated you about that. That was one of the most interesting answers we've gotten. Question one B. Rate the podcasts of Lyft Performance Centre of all the staff there. Just rank them. Who's the best? So, for listeners, at Lift Performance Center, we have Weekly Weights, obviously the best one. We have Fighters Performance by Mark Brewer. We have Lucid Health Education Podcast by Luke Tollick, which appears to be on hiatus. We have the Lift Performance Education Podcast by Rob, something like that, Lift Education Podcast. What else have we got? Under the Bar. Under the Bar with Rawdon. Um, so, shift Under the Bar to the top, and then that's your order. I'm offended, dude. <laughs> what, you're bars. second. Yeah, we should be first. <laughs> Under the Bar's Ooh, a good podcast. Guys, if you don't listen to any of them, though, I would give them all a listen if they tickle your fancy. Uh, and also, Will and I have both featured on Rob's podcast, so if you like hearing Of which our... they don't know the name of it. So What is it? The Lift the Performance Centre Education no, Podcast. the Lift Education Podcast. Lift Education. Cato didn't want to be associated with it. He didn't want Lift... Bef- he want, didn't want the full name in there. But he just used the failed. logo. Yeah. So he's associated. <laughs> yeah. Right. It was a, a, an attempt at a joke, Alex. Shout out, Kato. <laughs> <laughs> all right, question two. Question two, who is your favorite athlete of all time? Again, um, two avenues. You can't say Hitler for your favorite <laughs> athlete of all time again. He, he was actually pretty influential in the Olympic Games. But yeah, he was. Anyway. True. Um, Freddie Flintoff. Yes, interesting one. Um, the first idiot. Ashes I was exposed to was the, was it 0506? I um, mean, in the UK. Oh, sorry. I thought you were saying Freddie Fittler. No, Flintoff. Oh, why? <laughs> <laughs> Go on. Uh, because um, just uh, his, like, um, attitude towards, like, you know, the team, the the uh, um, culture of kind of cricket and also just his kind of on-field persona. So, like, uh, for example, he would, like his celebrations and his way of, like, incorporating his own personality in the way he played but also like hitting a six with like a dislocated shoulder um and hitting it with one hand with one arm rather was just like pretty incredible it was my first ever exposure to cricket and i just thought that that series was really cool and he was kind of like the iconic feature of it that's a terrible answer (laughs) but the other realm the other avenue would be uh, cristiano ronaldo so i grew up playing soccer or football and um, Cristiano Ronaldo was another person who was like really good at, at expressing himself. Um, and being a foreign player, he shifted the, um, he increased the scope for foreign players in the UK, and you know got the attention of um, of all the fans. And like it'd be situations where he would be so skillful and so 
like just outclass everyone that even away teams would applaud and that's something that's really hard to do uh, particularly in UK crowds so where do you reckon Ronaldo played his best football Manchester United you reckon yeah was that CR7 he was playing 7 for them that's what they say and then they call him CR9 at Barcelona yeah yeah yeah, he used to do some amazing things. But he was just my major inspiration. Was he the fastest guy in world sport or something for a while? I'm not sure. I don't know if he would have been the fastest guy in world sport. I don't even know if he would have been the fastest guy in soccer. Like, he's yeah. explosive and agile, but yeah. surely not. I don't know. Check your FIFA stats. Yes. Anybody who's got, like, a <laughs> FIFA 90, 09 or something. Yeah. Posture 7. His, dri- his dribbling's, like, 101 in FIFA. Yeah. Um, anyway, question three. Um... Which movie character or TV character do you most resemble? I'd say a JD from Scrubs. Oh, we're watching that at the moment. Yeah. You don't physically resemble <laughs> JD from Scrubs in the slightest. But uh, yeah, no, I grew up like in high school and stuff. I love Scrubs and I just resonated a lot with that character. And then I you've been know. working in a hospital or you were working in a hospital yeah. for a while too, wheeling beds yeah. around or something. Oh, I was a operations um, assistant. So effectively like cleaning up the blood and maneuvering patients and shit like that so yeah that was that was uh, um, just a means to stay like financially secure during uni but yeah but beyond that just like I kind of resonated with that character just like the crippling self-consciousness and ego and daydreams yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) I did enjoy Scrubs I used to watch it a lot alright question four your life's being made into a montage what music do you set it to I really liked I think you guys should reframe this question is that you're getting ready for a UFC fight. What song do you walk out to? Well, you can do that as well, but then you can answer the montage after. Why can't we be friends by war? <laughs> <laughs> That's what Homer Simpson comes out to when he fights um, uh, Tatum in that Simpsons yeah, episode. Trick, trick, yeah. Trick Tatum. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, um, there was a TV show called Wimp to Warrior and I think it became an E-series. I don't think it ever actually made it to TV. And a guy that I went to school with was in the pilot series. And he was that guy at school who was like not great at sport, but extremely keen and wanted to be good. Like he'd play Knights rugby, but like treat it like it was first 15, you know. Um, And so he was the ultimate person to put in this because he wasn't that athletic. But they basically trained them up to be um, mixed martial arts fighters. And then they had a fight at the Camaray Leagues Club. So like up the road, they had a big fight night. And me and a bunch of other guys went and watched him. Um, And... He's he came out to something like really stereotypical like hype music, and the other guy came out to um, what is love, yeah, baby don't hurt me, don't. and it was so funny because the other guy came out second, and so our guy had like full hyped himself, and then he was just put against this dude who was plainly on the troll from the second he got out there. I think uh, I think my mate even lost, but he kept fighting. Um, yeah, anyway, good stuff. So why can't we be friends? Exactly. And then your montage song, also Why Can't We Be Friends? Or Yeah, or just some generic EDM. That would go really well with like the ziz phase I had when I was a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> EDM's good. It's yeah. got like peaks and troughs. Yeah, exactly. You know, a bit of an envelope filter yeah. and then like, yeah, fade into a massive bass drop, which is when you get your honours, I presume. Oh, yeah. That's like going to be the peak of my oh, existence. when you pull for the wind, Junior Nats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> drop. When I deadlift 300 kilos. Uh, yeah, anytime now. Um, <laughs> all right. Thanks so much for joining us, mate. Thank you so much for also being so prepared. One more, um, one more job, Rob. Yeah. Plug your podcast. Mm. More. Plug your education thing. Yeah. Plug yourself. Plug yourself. Off you go. How do I plug myself? Your socials. Yeah, socials. So, 
Um, I'm education manager at Lyft Performance Center, and effectively my job role is to uh, gather research on kind of hot button topics and actually find an evidence based approach to training. Um, and so with our students in our professional development group, uh, they come to our lectures and they have access to all our resources. Um, and it, it basically does the research for you. So we're, we're taking maybe more complex issues, um, summarizing and synthesizing all the literature and, and bringing it out in, in, uh, in ways that is easy for you to consume um, and understand and then apply it to your clients. Where can people who are interested in this um, find more information? So you can go to the Lyft uh, Education website. So that's www.lifteducation.info. You can email me directly at rob at liftperformancecenter.com.au um, or even direct message just the Lyft Performance uh, Instagram page. Um, and we come out like weekly with different kind of training tips and things of that nature and talk about what's on for the lecture in the PDG group. So if you're interested, um, definitely um, contact me and we can, uh, yeah, go from there. Awesome, man. And you individually, do you want to put your socials up or are you happy to have just professional inquiries? Yeah, it's not very impressive, my socials. It was the old flat fitness days. I don't know why I deleted that account. i tell you what, I went on a bit of like a social media cleanse. I was one of those people. Like my sister, for example, is a bit of a minimalist and she was yeah, like, Yeah, I haven't hey, found gotta- her on Instagram, actually. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, hey, guy, hey, man, like you got to like just detach from everything. Sounds like a hippie. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, that's a really good idea. But then I just, yeah, kind of lost my entire following which probably wasn't very good for my career but nonetheless i still have avenues where i can kind of get a good uh good exposure out there and um but yeah uh robbie rob is the instagram Um, i'm sorry if it's not very interesting and again what's the podcast called the lift education podcast itunes which platform is that on itunes iTunes and on the lift education website all right wicked thanks so much for joining us man um guys we'll chat to you next week i'm will I'm Alex. Peace out. See ya.